Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Delphine. She is a special education consultant in Canada with dyslexia, so I'm excited to hear the stories, hear about her life, and thank you so much for being here, Delphine. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Sarah. Thanks for the platform for tonight. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of just being able to chat and talk about life from a different perspective. So yeah. Um, so I guess, as you said, um, I'm a special education consultant here up in Canada. Uh, I'm a teacher by background. I've been a special education teacher for a really long time. And um, I am a person who grew up with a learning disability. So I was diagnosed really early on. I was about seven when I was diagnosed and placed uh, in a special education class uh, where I was um, sort of in a small class placement with... I think there might have been eight of us in the class and a teacher and an EA. Um, and I probably didn't learn to read until I was nearly 11, um, which um, I guess brought with it some challenges. Um, and I've learned to kind of overcome some of those. But as I grew up, you know, going through university and trying to find support and services, I had to advocate for myself. I had to do a lot of self-advocacy, self-advocating. Um, and then I've since had, uh, two children, well, three kids, but two of them are diagnosed, um, also with learning disabilities, um, dyslexia specifically. So it's a lot of kind of relearning and, um, just seeing from a different perspective. So, uh, when I first became a teacher, I knew I wanted to teach in special education because I wanted to be able to give back. Um, but as when I started in special education, I thought I could understand parents. I thought I would be like, oh, yeah, I've got this thing. Like, I can talk to parents about spec ed and understand and be able to sort of empathize and, and see from their perspective. But I realized quite quickly that I wasn't a parent and that that not having that piece, it was missing a little bit. And then I became a parent, but then I became a parent of children with learning disabilities. So then when I was working with parents in the education system, it gave me a very different perspective, a different, a very different way of thinking about it and um, a way of kind of, I don't know, to be able to, to see it from their perspective. And so it changed my view on a lot of things. Um, and then as I went through my own kid's journey, I kept looking for people to help, to support, to talk to, to go to. And I, I kind of couldn't find anyone. Um, I sort of wanted a a resource to go to, to be like, Hey, here's my, here's my issue. Here's what I'm struggling with. Who do I talk to? What do I do? What resources, you know, or just even to just have someone listen to me when the day was just really crappy. Um, so I started, um, my, my agency access to education, um, to be that outlet for families, to be able to give them, um, a place to come to, to ask questions, to seek resources, to just kind of be a, a launching pad in a way, but also to support parents in understanding their roles around individual education plans and how they can advocate for their children and, and why it's important that they ensure that their voices, parents are really um, heard and then how they can teach their kids moving forward um, to 
advocate as well. So it starts with the parents advocating, but then I do a lot of work with families to hand off the advocacy work to their kids as they get older. So when you were a kid, were your parents good about advocating for you? Hmm. My parents are really great about advocating for me. Um, I was super, super fortunate. Um, my parents tell this story often, or they've told it to me several times, especially since we've had our own children and kind of going back to what my, or what their experience with me was. And my dad tells the story. It was like the very last day of school. Um, and they still hadn't had the individual placement recommendation committee meeting that would sort of give me the designation of a student with a learning disability and then decide where I would go to school. And so up here in Canada, we go to the end of June. Uh, and I, I want to say it was like June 30th. I'm going to use that as an arbitrary date, but it was like June 30th and they still hadn't had the meeting. And my dad basically went into the, into the office and was like, listen, I don't care that it's, you know, your two months holiday. My kid needs to have this and we need to get it done. And, you know, within a week, the, the meeting was booked and, and the things were done. And um, so they were always really, really great at advocating for me in the beginning. Um, and then I had some amazing teachers um, through that. And what was great was that because I was in this intensive small class program, I kept the same teacher through elementary school. So I had one consistent teacher from basically grade one to grade five, I guess, because I would have left for grade six. So from one to five, I had the same teacher. So every year I came back into the same classroom with the same teacher and sort of continued on from where we had left the year before, which I also think probably contributed a little bit to my success in terms of there was continuity. Many kids, you know, year to year, you change teachers, you get new teachers, new teachers come in. I mean, this is just life, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has to deal with change and that's kind of part of it. But um, this first special education teacher I have I had, I credit with a lot of my success in terms of her having been able to support me. And, you know, I remember one incident, I got so mad at the math that she was making me do that. I I remember like throwing the book closed so that it made like a loud thump and I pushed it off the table and it landed on the table (laughs) and she didn't yell at me. She didn't say anything. She just gave me the teacher look and she stood up and she walked away from me. And I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Right. (laughs) So she was just that really supportive teacher who who like she would let you go she would let you cross the line but she would make it very clear in a very gentle way that the line had been crossed you were not to do it again um but she was pretty pivotal in in um yeah getting me to where i am and then um through high school and things my parents um support i mean high school was a whole other kettle because in grade I'm going on a tangent here, Sarah, like trying to like loop you back through, but I left. So I was in that one school for several years. And then I went to a middle school. When I got to the end of grade eight, again, we had to sit through this IPRC meeting. um, And I had a table full. I asked to go to this meeting. And I remember my parents being like, why do you want to go to this meeting? And I was like, because you're talking about me, you're making decisions about where I'm going to go to school moving forward. And I feel like I need to be there to advocate for myself. So I was sort of coming by the end of grade eight, I was coming to that point where I realized that really the advocating was going to be on me. My parents had done a great job. My teachers had set me up for success and now it was my turn. And, uh, I sat at a table at one of those big, long, um, boardroom tables. And I had the principal of my school, my current special education teacher, the guidance counselor, the special education consultant for the school board, the psychologist, my parents. And I, there may have been like one other person, 
but any of the like experts, so like teacher, psychologist, spec ed consultant, guidance counselors, whatever, they all sat around. And I vividly remember them saying to me, because I had picked two high schools, one of which had a support system for kids with spec ed and one did not. And I was going to have to go on my own and I wouldn't get any support. But I decided I was going to go to the one with no support. And I vividly remember them all sitting there looking at me and saying, well, you shouldn't bother going to this school because if you go to the arts school where there is no support, you'll never finish high school. You'll never go to university. And without help, you won't be able to survive. You, you'll drown. And I think that for me was the pivotal moment where I was like, mm, no, I'm going to go to this school and I'm going to do that thing. And you all are going to like, <laughs> I'm going to bring you the degree and you can all eat it. Right. Like it was kind of one of those things. And so the degree now from university hangs on my wall. Um, I have a master's in teaching from a university out in Australia. And um I think a lot of what I do in my teaching is really trying to empower kids and remember that like, you know, people can tell you, you can't all they want, but it, at the end of the day, you are the decider of your own destiny. If you want to do it, go do it. Don't let anybody get in your way. But if you want people to put roadblocks in your way, people will put roadblocks in your way. It's just a question of whether or not you want to knock the roadblock out of the way or whether you want to go a different way because it's too hard to knock it down. And and there, listen, there are moments where life is too hard and there's roadblocks that are like, ugh, I can't, you know, can't do that. But I, I would strongly suggest that you look carefully at the roadblock and decide, you know, is it one that is worth knocking down? And for me that the going to this particular high school, even though there was no support was worth it for me. So what was it like in high school without having the support that you had been having while in school? <laughs> uh, grade nine was a bit of a shock. <laughs> grade nine was rough. Um, grade nine, when I went to grade nine at the time, so here in Ontario where I went to school, um, it was the first year of no streaming. So there was no sort of um, academic, you know, general or whatever. We were all just kind of lumped together. And I had been used to being in a class of, you know, eight or 10 kids for a really long time. And I'd been integrated for a lot of things through grade seven and grade eight to prepare me for high school. But I mean, there's still a difference between being able to go out to a safe space. If I feel like the 27 people in the class is too much to all of a sudden being in a high school room where, uh, there's like 30, 35 people in my class and the teacher doesn't necessarily know me or know kind of, cause it's, I mean, high school, it's just, it's a whole other ball game. Um, so the first couple of months were a bit tricky. Um, but I did eventually, interestingly enough, uh, connect with a teacher at the school who, um, was the special education teacher in the school. And she ended up being my swim coach. Um, I swam competitively and, I wanted to swim for the high school team. And so she happened to be the coach who was also, and so through that connection, she opened her door to me and was like, if you need me, you can come and talk to me. But one of her pieces of advice was you need to go talk to your teachers individually. She said, they will not know that you have an IEP. They will not know that you get to write your exam in a separate space. They won't know. Like there were all of these things that she was very clear with me. It's like, you need to be the one to kind of, ask for what you need. You can't expect it to be given to you. And so I did, I had to swallow my pride with a lot of teachers. And the ones that made me the most nervous were my, were my math teachers, because I, math is not, not my favorite subject. Um, 
but I had some great supportive teachers uh, who were very patient with me, who were very kind. Um, there were a couple who were, um, I think, understanding, but you know, also kind of were like, "We'll just get over it and do it," sort of a thing. But um, you know, I think all of those things kind of wanted me to prove myself even more. Like I, it, it made me want to do more. So. Yeah, that was high school, kind of in a nutshell. So what sort of challenges do you face with having dyslexia? So the biggest one for me is um, reading and spelling. Um, I had always used technology. Technology has always been a tool that for me has been really helpful. But as these tools have become better, have become kind of more accurate and all of those things um it sort of having spell check and having siri that i can you know do voice to text instead of having to type that one of the the things that i have with my dyslexia is that um the ideas are all up there they're all in my head but the time the processing time that it takes for the idea to ramble in my brain and to get down my arm and into paper can often be a bit of a, a barrier for me in that i don't I can't, it's too much time and I lose the meaning and then I can't write it and I can't get it all out right. It just doesn't sound right. And so um, that's where voice to text for me has been really, really great. Um, but even just things like when Word did spell check, like that changed my life because it meant that I didn't have to go find the dictionary quite literally um, to figure out the spelling of a word. And even now, like just being able to use Google to check the spelling of something, like I was looking up the word neurodiverse and I was trying to write it the other day and I couldn't figure out the E and the U. And I was like, I don't know what order. And I should know you'd think I would, but it's one of those inversions for me that still continues to be problematic. And so I could just put it into Google and then that, you know, allows me to double check my spelling, right? And I don't have to go to other people and I can, and I will. And I have certain people who I feel safe enough to kind of go to and be like, Hey, can you just like double check this for me? But the independence of being able to use technology to help, um, reading for me is super laborious. It's not, I don't read out of enjoyment. My parents spend, you know, holidays reading books and books and books. And I'm like, I want nothing. I will do puzzles until the cows come home but I will not pick up a book. It is not a relaxing activity for me. It's laborious. It's a lot of work. I often will forget sort of the flow of the story. And so I have to go back two chapters to be able to catch up from where, like it just for me is not a lot of fun. And so um, being able to have books on tape for me or like audio books, they're not on tape. Look at how old am I books on tape. Um, but to be able to have audiobooks, so, you know, Amazon's Audible for me is great. You know, Michelle Obama's book, I really wanted to read it, but I knew I wouldn't be able to take it in the same way. And so I was able to get it on Audible and I would go on walks and I would just listen, you know, an hour at a time, which was great. Um, so some of those things, um, those have been some of the challenges and then kind of the way that I sort of worked around them and, and finding ways to make things easier. Um, certainly, you know, the technology's just come such a long way, um, which I think is so awesome for students and people with, with disabilities in general, like it just no matter whether it's hearing or sight or an intellectual disability, disability or something. I mean, it's really technology has allowed for those who are neurodiverse to be able to access things like a neurotypical person would, which I think allows 
for people to feel more independent and to feel like they're capable um, while still kind of protecting a little bit of themselves. Because you don't always want to tell everybody, hey, I'm a terrible speller and I need you to help me, right? Like as a teacher, for me to be like, yeah, I'm a terrible speller. I mean, I remember in teacher's college, one of my um, supervising teachers wouldn't sign off on my on the notes I had taken on her teaching because there were spelling errors in them. And so she made me go home and rewrite them all. And then she wouldn't sign them until they were spelled correctly. And I was like, you understand that I have a learning disability. You understand that like my practicum teacher is not going to be like reading through the, Oh no, I can't sign it because it's, you know, it's spelled incorrectly. And as a teacher, I can't do that. You know? And I just, those were the things that for me made everything harder, but by the same token, I think made me want to do more or do better or prove something. I don't know if that makes any sense. I I think it does, honestly, like kind of the idea of like, external people were making things difficult. I want to prove them wrong. And then in turn, also then become a teacher and help other people. Yeah, I mean, that was the goal with being a teacher was I wanted to be able to give back. So yeah, I think that's a, that's probably a good way of summarizing all of that long ramble. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we love the long ramble. So what do you do as a special education consultant? Um, so in my access to education job that I do, um, I work with families uh, one-on-one um, because I find, and I may at some point move into group systems, but right now I really find that some of these families are just so at the beginning stages and need just such intensive one-on-one support to be able to focus on them. But what I do is I um, work with families either on a consultation basis, so an hour phone call where they give me the whole spiel of what's going on, and then I build them a roadmap. I'm like, okay, great. So here are all of the things you're struggling with. So, you know, your your child's having trouble in school, your child's teacher is saying they're not reading, you know, um, you're noticing things at home. And then I sort of go through the, have you talked to the family doctor? Have you had hearing tested? Have you had eyes tested? You know, maybe you want to look at doing um, a developmental assessment, depending on the age of the child. Maybe you want to look at getting a psychoed assessment done. Maybe you need to go to the school and ask them for occupational therapy support. Sort of what are the steps that parents can take to, um, to kind of, get from where they are, where they're feeling very stuck, overwhelmed, unsure, don't really know what to do to getting to a place where there's progress, where, you know, maybe they've been connected with a therapist of some sort, or they've been connected with a tutor who's going to be able to support their child, or they've been able to just go into the school and advocate in a way that allows for, um, sort of greater communication between school and home. Um, because I think that's, that's a really big thing is, is, the communication between the school and the home and kind of having everybody working in the same team to work towards the same goal. And the, the goal is always child-centered. And what um, I've done with my own kids, what I try to do in my teaching role, um, and then what I try to get families to do or work towards to have families do with their schools is really kind of creating a, a circle between the home and the school but really putting the child in the center of that so that the focus becomes, okay, what can we all do collectively to support this child to ensure that they're successful? So I work with parents on a consultation basis. I work with parents um, in three month chunks of time or in 10 month chunks of time. So they can work with me for the whole school year, just a part of the school year. 
Um, and I've also done a lot of consultation of late, actually, with families around kids who have learning disabilities and whether or not they should stay in French immersion, um, which is something that's offered up here in Ontario and most of Canada, where I am, because it's one of our, our second languages. Um, but parents often have questions about, you know, is French immersion the appropriate place for my child? And, and if so, how do I get help? Because it's actually not that easy to find support in French um, it's very easy to find English tutors in reading and writing and all of those things, but it's a little bit more challenging in French. And so I'm able to kind of point them to some resources and places to go. So I really try to give them a roadmap, whether I'm working with them for only an hour or three months or 10 months, we really build out a roadmap. We build a goal and then we work towards that goal. And what is French immersion? Yeah. So for those who don't know, uh, so we have up here in Canada, uh, we uh, have two languages, two official languages, English and French, and all children starting in grade four start taking what we call core French. So, you know, it's very basic French. It's kind of learning how to say your name and days of the week and sort of very basic things. But starting uh, in some provinces in senior kindergarten, other provinces in grade one, um, children can enter something called French immersion. And it is an immersive French program where the children learn in French all day long from very early primary until about grade four, where there is no French, in, pardon me, no English introduced at all. It is all in French. So the children are learning to become fluent French speakers. And then in grade four, they start getting one period a day. So about a 40 minute chunk every day in English. And the reverse is true. If you're in the English stream, you get French, right? So that everybody's learning how to speak French. Um, and the struggle there is that, um, Although the French immersion programs are awesome and the teachers do a really great job of supporting the kids and working with the kids and doing all these things, part of the struggle is that uh, it's not necessarily always supported in terms of providing special education support in the way that the English program is. Uh, it can be a little bit more challenging depending on the staff in the school. So it gets to be a bit of a struggle. Um, and so parents often have questions about, you know, my child is dyslexic, for example, or my child has ADHD and the school is saying French immersion isn't a good fit. And that isn't necessarily the case. It just means that the child might need a little bit of extra help. And so it's a case of like, how can we find that? And so I can help parents source resources in French because I have a few resources that I know of and have worked with. And, and because my children are, have gone through a French school system, um, I have some background and some information that I can share with them on that. So that's actually been really interesting is to help parents kind of decide whether they stay in English or whether they move or they stay in French or do they move, do they go, kind of what are the different options. And they're both the like French immersion or like the English program, like at each school. Mm -hmm. So generally the French immersion um, school is at a, it's not necessarily your local school, but it's at a school not very far away. And often um, we call them dual track schools. So there's many schools that are English and French sort of combined together so that you have the two languages going on in the school. There's a couple of, at least here where I am, there's at least one of that I know of that is only French, um, but uh, like only French immersion. So, you know, it tends to be families who are English speaking families who want their children to learn French because they see the benefits like learning Spanish in the States, right? You, I think it's sort of Spanish or maybe another language that you learn, but it's that sort of idea of kind of giving them a, a second language um, because there is a benefit to having two languages, right? I, I don't think anybody can deny that having a second language of any sort um, is really beneficial as one grows up in terms of the job force that it, it makes you a little bit more marketable, right? Like I can speak Spanish and English and French, for example, or you could speak, you know, 
I mean, if you could speak any of the Asian languages, that's also right a really interesting thing. And and some kids have tri languages, which I think is amazing. Um, but there are, there are instances where children with learning disabilities do sometimes struggle with learning a new language. However, there are many studies out there that suggest that the learning disability will be present no matter what the language is. So it's removing them from that educational opportunity is not always the answer. Um, the answer is actually to support them within the programming. And that is a little bit where the struggle becomes. So in schools in general, um, whether French immersion or not, are you seeing that schools are doing a good job helping with students with disabilities? I think schools are doing the best they can with what they have. I mean, in a, no, but like in a perfect system, right? Every class would be a small class, right? So that children can get, you know, super individualized attention and, and teachers wouldn't have to be dealing with 30 individual kids trying to plan for th like, it's just, so in general, yes. Do I think there's room for improvement? Absolutely. I think there's, there's lots of room to look at the research of how we teach children. I mean, one of the big hot topics right now is looking at the science of reading and how we teach children to read. And for a long time, um, I didn't really understand the science of reading. I didn't understand how to teach kids how to read. I just figured that, you know, I had been taught one way and this is how it should be done. And, and I, when I reflect upon it now, I realize I was probably taught in this scientific way. Um, in terms of doing a lot of phonics and breaking down words and learning about vowels and how they fit together and breaking words down and phonemes and graphemes and all those fun things. But when I went to teacher's college, there wasn't a course on like how to teach children to read. And so I arrived as a teacher teaching grade one in my second, my first year of teaching, I taught French, a core French actually. Um, but then my second year of teaching, I was teaching grade one and I had to teach little ones to read. And I was like, I don't know how to teach kids to read. Like I, I didn't even know where to start. So I started taking courses and, and there was a, a philosophy and a theory and a way to teach reading at that time. And, and that was what I, I did and, and what I understood. But I went to a conference, um, a learning disability association conference when I was, uh, it was only a couple of years ago. And they showed us something called the Scarborough reading rope. And it's sort of two ropes that have a bunch of strings that come off of them. And it shows how the sort of six components come together to tie together to make an entire reading comprehension. And it just made so much sense. And it goes back to the basics of learning basic letter sounds, of learning um, how to blend words together, of how not to use the picture to guess, not to use the word before and after, right? It's really learning targeted strategies to sound out words to understand them. And it wasn't until this past fall that I really got to watch it work. Um, so my children have been taking part in tutoring. My, my two kids, as I said, my oldest two um, have dyslexia. And my middle son was a non-reader in August, like could not read in English and could not read in French. And remember, he's been going to French since preschool. So he was in grade for reading at about a grade one level at the start of this year in French and in English equally about a grade one level. And I, uh, finally was like, Hey, this is ridiculous. Like we can't, this can't continue. I have to do something. And so 
I had been learning over the last couple of years about Barton um, reading system, Orton Gillingham and the Wilson program is a couple of programs that are, are geared towards kids with learning disabilities, dyslexia in particular. And I found a tutor who does the Barton system and he started working with him on August 23rd. I remember the date of their very first session and my middle son turned uh, nine in about the middle of October. So it was October 20th was his birthday. And he voluntarily opened all five of his birthday cards and read them without prompting, without needing help. And like the joy in his face that he was able to do that independently. And that was the moment for me where I was like, okay, there is something that makes sense here. You can't go from a non-reader in August. And listen, we all know birthday cards are not super complicated to read. Like they're not, you know, they're not um, Shakespeare, right? Like <laughs> not complicated to read. But he would have previously either not opened the card at all and just gone straight to the gift, or he would have opened the card, handed it to me and said, you read it. But he didn't do that. He opened the cards voluntarily. He read them cover to cover. And was it a perfect read? No. Did he struggle with some of the words? Of course. But what it was for my husband and I was a moment of like, oh my God, he can do this. And the confidence that we've seen build up in him since this, in that now he's not relying on his older brother to read things. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, at I want to say it was late, it was like 9.30 at night, he was still awake. And I was like, what is he doing? And I could hear him talking. I was like, what? He had this um, book of knowledge um, on his desk or on his in his bed he was in his bed and he was reading but like a history book on like the history of i want to say it was um mummies or something like it was something very scientific he was really enjoying it but he was voluntarily choosing to read it which for me was that like okay there's something to this i need to dig into this more i need to understand this more and so a lot of what i'm doing you know even when i'm you know, working with clients or, or as a teacher, really trying to understand the science of reading and, and how I can bring that more full force to the front, because I think it's just so important because if you can't read it, life is tough. You can't read road signs. You can't read grocery lists. You can't read ingredients. You like, you know, reading is just kind of one of those things. And so, yes, there are apps for that quite literally, like there are apps that will read things to you. Sure. But you know, there is something to be said also for being able to read. And so um, that was a bit of a life-changing moment for me as a mom to be able to see my kid read, but as an educator to realize that I need to change how I do things and not because I'm doing it wrong, but because I could do it better, right? It's not wrong. It's just a better way. Yeah, that sounds extremely like heartwarming and just like such a great moment um to be able to see that in in your kid and just see it work so well what sort of other situations have you come across um like with your children realizing that they had disabilities and were going to need help like you did yeah that was a hard one i i fought it for a really long time like a really really long time uh it started with my eldest when he was in like nursery school. So 
there's 23 months between my kids. And so I knew that when my second kid came along, I was like, I cannot have two under two all day long. It's not happening. So I had set up for my eldest to go just down the street. There was a woman who ran a little program in her house for two hours. I, I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, sort of a thing. Um, and so I had signed him up and, uh, I would go and pick him up and every day she would have like a little thing to tell me like, Oh, he did this, or he couldn't do this, or he hit this kid, or he's not listening, or he's not like, there were always little things. There were just little, I don't want to call them nitpicky things, but they, they were at the time they felt nitpicky. But when I look at it now, I'm like, no, she was gently trying to tell me that like, I should probably be looking into this, but you also think like, it's your first kid. I did the stereotypical, oh, he's a boy, like all of those things. But then we got to preschool at daycare and the same things were happening, but kind of on a bigger scale. And I was like, okay, hold the phone here. And at this point I'd been working in spec ed for a little while, but when people started to tell me about, you know, your kid is a behavioral problem, I was picturing what I was working with at the time. And at the time I was working with children who had huge behavior, like throwing chairs at me on a daily basis. Okay. So I didn't have the perspective. I only had the perspective of what I saw in the classroom. And what I saw in the classroom was big kids yelling and screaming and swearing at me and throwing chairs and doing all kinds of things. And I was thinking, he's four. Like, how can he be, or three even, how can he be a behavioral thing? Anyhow, I finally mustered the courage to say, okay, clearly I need to look into this a little bit. So I, I went to what is always my first piece of advice is to go to our family doctor. And I didn't make a separate appointment for this. We were going for one of his checkups. And I said, oh, and by the way, the school is saying that he's, you know, not able to sit and he's not following directions and he's running around and he's doing all these things. And, you know, I don't really know what to do. And he was like, oh, well, why don't we start with a developmental assessment? I was like, great. What is that? Right. And so it literally was going to see a couple of other doctors who kind of watched him, played some games you know, looked at what he was able to do in comparison to other children his age. Um, and we sort of went from there. And that initial developmental assessment uh, showed markers of ADHD um, and showed some gross motor issues. So he had a lot of trouble holding a pencil. He also has a like a double jointed thumb, which makes holding pencils in like the normal tripod way really difficult. So printing was a, a challenge for him. It still is a bit of a challenge. But so there were some markers there. And then, you know, we kind of got into the school system. And by about middle of grade two, we knew things were not great. Um, and so I advocated and pushed really hard to do a psychoed assessment, which we had done privately because the school system was going to take too long. But even there, the psychologist wanted to wait until he was closer to grade three. And I pushed really hard. And I said, no, we need to do this now because we need to know what we're facing. So we did the assessment. And uh, he came out to be uh, triple exceptional. So he has a learn a, they call it a specific language learning disability, which under any other umbrella is dyslexia. So we just use the term dyslexia in our house. Um, he has general anxiety disorder as well as ADHD combined. So there's two sorts of ADHD. There's ADHD inattentive. That's just sort of, they're not able to pay attention to things. The little, you know, they're the squirrel in the room, the, or the dog in the room. Oh, squirrel, I'm going to go get that. Or, oh, it's shiny. I'm going over that. Um, but he is combined. So he is both inattentive and hyperactive. Um, and uh, that led us on a whole other journey of, I didn't want to do medication. I was like, ADHD is fine, but we will not medicate. And I fought it tooth and nail. We went to a naturopath who was amazing and understanding and 
walked me through and, you know, stood with me as I cried. Um, and my poor little guy, he, uh, would swallow fish oil right off a spoon because it was all about gut health and brain and all this stuff and probiotics and all. And we did that for, uh, I want to say a solid year, if not two. And, uh, we finally realized that that wasn't working and we made a switch to medication, uh, and, the difference was day and night for us in our family. The difference with medication was day and night. It is not everyone's experience. And I always preface this part of what I talk about when I talk about meds as being a very personal choice. It is not something that anyone should need to, or have to talk you into. Um, it took me a long time to get there. Um, but so that was our sort of our eldest son's story. Um, and my middle son, poor thing, I was so busy worrying about his brother that I didn't see that he was drowning, quite literally drowning at school, um, which for any of the moms out there, I'm sure they can all understand, then leads to the mom guilt of, well, how did I not know? And I put all my eggs in one basket and how can I love two children equally and all of these things? So I've had to work through that a little bit, but, um, you know, we, uh, we figured him out. We know what's happening. Again, he has a similar profile to his brother in that he has this specific language learning disability, um, general anxiety disorder, much more anxious than his older brother, but he is um, only inattentive in his ADHD. And so we don't have the same behavioral issues. Um, so, you know, there's been lots of therapies, especially for my eldest, because he is so impulsive. Um, that's been the biggest struggle for him. And making friends has been really, really hard for my eldest. Um, he's socially, he's a little bit awkward. He's not like every other kid. Um, you know, we always joke my middle kid, um, he can make friends with a tree if he had to. I mean, he's just, he's the social kid. He loves people. He wants to interact with people. Um, my eldest, not so much. It's kind of not his, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to enter into a group to play, right? That's, that's still challenging. He's almost 12. Um, so we've done lots of work with, occupational therapists and speech language pathologists and all sorts of programs to try and help him through that. And then you said you have three children, right? I do. I have a five-year-old little girl who is stubborn as all get out. My husband and I joke that we have no idea where she could possibly get her stubbornness from, uh, clearly from me. Um, I, I, I have no idea what she has in store for us. Um, but it will not be boring. Uh, it will be interesting. Life with her is unpredictable. Um, she keeps us on our toes. Um, she is a spitfire for sure. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, she is just going into grade one in the fall. So um, of yet, I'm not concerned. But I... I sort of always kind of hold my breath a little bit because, uh, you know, I've done it twice. I don't know if I have the strength to do it a third time. Although, I mean, if we have to go through the rigmarole a third time, then we will. Um, the prevalence of things like learning disabilities and such in girls is less than boys. Um, so I spent a lot of my school years in the special education class with generally being the only girl in the class. It was all boys with me. Um, so that said, um, what is nice for me is I've been down the road before, so I, I kind of already know who to call. <laughs> I have my ghostbuster number ready to call. Um, but, um, yeah, she's little yet. And, um, 
we're recording this in pandemic. So she has basically had uh, up here in Canada, we've been in lockdown in what seems like the last 18 months, essentially. Um, and so she, in what would have normally been 20 months of school has only had 10. And those 10 months have been very interrupted. Uh, and so her learning and that learning of a lot of kids, uh, my older two included, uh, has been impacted for sure. You know, when you can't have that consistency um, in schools, the routine, the normalcy of that, it impacts learning for sure. hundred percent it does. And so I think for several years to come, I think we will see the impact that this last 18 months has had. That said, I don't think it's insurmountable. I also think teachers are highly aware of what is coming forward and, and will be able to accommodate, you know, effectively and appropriately. Um, you know, teachers have worked really, really hard to try and, and work with kids through all of this. And it has not been ideal. It has worked wonderfully for some. I mean, I know some kids who, you know, I never hear their voices at school, but I get them on a screen where their camera is off and they're not looking necessarily at the screen and they're talking. And it's like, I've never even heard in three years, I'd never heard their voice before. So, you know, for some kids, this online situation has worked really well for other kids. It hasn't. Um, so yeah, so for my five-year-old for kindergarten, kindergarten over, over zoom is not awesome. <laughs> um, my older two have done okay. You know, I mean, they've done the best they can. Uh, we finally figured out my middle kid and his meds. We finally managed to find a med that is working and, and is making a huge difference to his ability to stay focused and on task during the day. Um, so that's made a big difference too, in that he's able to pay attention to what he needs to learn to be successful. And as I said before, this tutoring has really brought with it the benefit of supporting his confidence and, and helping him. Yeah. So going back a little bit um, with your education, what was it like working through and deciding to go to college and deciding to get a master's? I didn't. The master's was an afterthought. Um, so I, I finished, I went to a, a, a high school that was arts focused. I studied dance in the program that I was in, um, for the, we had up to grade 13 at the time. So nine to 12 was intensive dance programming. And then 12 was, or grade 13 was basically just finish, finish any courses you hadn't finished. And I was always a really, really active kid. And I was very involved in sports and dance and all that. And so I had decided that I wanted to go into kinesiology. I'd had a lot of experience with various athletic injuries. And I had worked with a number of athletic therapists. And I thought, ah, oh, this is like totally the job I want. I want to work with, you know, athletes and do these awesome things. And so um, at the time, there was a program that didn't require you to have a whole lot of maths and sciences to get in because it wasn't science-based. So I went to a university uh, in St. Catharines called Brock University, where I was able to take their physical education uh, program, but I had a major in kinesiology, which was amazing. I mean, I soaked up every minute of that program. I loved it. It was great. Um, but I started working with part of the program was that you could work as a, as an athletic trainer with some of these teams. And I started traveling a lot on the road, a lot with various teams. And then I was working with people who would come into the clinic and 
you know, be like, oh yeah, go and do these exercises and come back and it'll get better and I'll help you and whatever. And then, you know, people kind of go away and listen, I am guilty of it. I'm the first one to raise my hand to be like, yeah, yeah, I've been to the physiotherapist. And they're like, yeah, yeah, do these exercises, you know, three times a day for however many weeks and come back and we'll figure it all out. Well, inevitably the people don't necessarily do all the exercises. They don't feel <laughs> like it's getting any better. You feel like you're fighting them as the patient. I was like, I don't know that this is kind of what I want. And, uh, I had a girlfriend who had gone to Australia to do teacher's college and she would send me emails or something. I think she was, I don't think Facebook was a thing at that time. <laughs> if, uh, if I'm being truly honest, I don't think Facebook was as big of a thing. And so I think she sent us emails with like pictures and like letters of what she was doing. And I was sort of in the back of my mind thinking teacher's college might be a good fit for me. But then I, I saw her doing this program and I was like, well, I, I won't get into teacher's college in Canada because up here in Canada, I needed to have like 90s to get into the teacher's college programs here. And I did not. I was an average student, but not with 90s. And I worked hard for what I got, but it was not, you know, the A's that were required. So I thought, okay, well, I've got to find another system. And so she went to the school in Australia and I looked it up and I thought, well, if I, and I was looking at actually applying to the States for teacher's college, but it was going to be the same amount of money for kind of not really the same experience. And I figured, well, if I'm going to spend that much money on school, I might as well go somewhere where I can, you know, I don't know, see the world. Cause I, you know, I was single. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I like just, world was my oyster. Why not? Mm -hmm. So I flew halfway around the world and, um, did my master's of teaching in Australia. So I lived, uh, in Brisbane, Australia for the better part of, I think it was 11 months. Um, and it was amazing and awesome. And I do not regret the decision to have done so. It was the best decision I could have made. I learned a lot. Um, I got to see some very different ways of teaching and a different educational system, which was interesting. Um, and it it ended up being a really good choice for me. But it wasn't it wasn't the goal initially. The goal, you know, was to be a physiotherapist of sorts. And it, you know, as life changes, I mean, I think we all kind of start. You know, I mean, when kids are little, oh, I want to be this and I want to be that. And then you kind of get into high school and you start to take courses and you think, oh, I want to do this, that and the other. And then you go to university and I there's lots of people who, you know, get their first degree and think, oh, yeah, that was great. But maybe I don't really want this. And they go back to school. And, and that's the joy of learning, right, is that it never ends. It continues. Um, I still have aspirations to go back to school and take a master's in psychology because I am super, I've always been curious in psychology. I now kind of kick myself that I didn't start with psychology as my undergrad, but, you know, schools never go anywhere. Um, and, and the joy of learning is experiencing new things and learning new things. And, and I, I really enjoy that part. Although it's hard for me, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of work. Um, it's fun. It, and you meet interesting people and you learn new things and, uh, and you grow, which I think is probably the biggest thing is the ability to kind of grow and, and learn. Yeah. Now, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? I think the only thing I would kind of want to say is just never underestimate a child's power. I think that sometimes as adults, we can make assumptions on children based on what we see in front of us. But there are a lot of kids out there who have some pretty amazing, awesome gifts. Um, they don't come out in the way that we necessarily picture them to come out, but their gifts are there. Uh, it requires a little bit of work, quite frankly, to find the gift. Um, 
but the gifts can be pretty awesome if you're willing to take the time to learn about them and and find it and so never underestimate you know if there's a parent out there with a kid who's struggling don't underestimate your child they have lots of potential uh, they just need to be guided a little bit and uh, teachers out there i mean you're all doing an awesome job but you know hold on to those kids who are different because those are the ones who will remember you at the end of the day for sure that's great now, with all of my guests at the end of the episode, I always ask a random question, so nothing to do with what we've talked about. So my question for you is going to be a little bit self-sufficient um, because you live in Ontario. So it's two parts. What is your favorite thing to do in Ontario? And also, like, what are you looking forward to doing most when lockdown is no longer a thing? Because <laughs> you all in Canada are still in oh, lockdown. Oh, man, we're still uh, Friday. We get out on Friday. We're supposed to be sprung on Friday. They tell us. We'll see. I'm double vaxxed now, though, so I'm good. Um, so the thing I like to do the most, there's sort of two things and it's seasonal dependent, right? So in the summer when it's warm, I like to go north. Uh, we have a cottage outside of the city and there's, it's on a lake. Uh, it's very quiet. It's lovely. Um, it's boat access only. So there's no cars, but we do have running water and electricity. I have all that fun stuff. I just, my car isn't, a, you know, steps from my door. Uh, in the winter, I love to ski. That is what we as a family like to do. So because here in Canada, we get to choose the season. So there has to be two different activities that you like to do. Uh, and the first thing that I'm looking forward to doing when we are sprung from all of this, and I have officially booked the trip, we were supposed to have gone away down to Punta Cana for a week in March of 2020. Uh, and we never got on the plane. And I have for two years just been like, why I need to go away where I don't have to think about laundry, cooking, cleaning, finding my children, any of that. So uh, I'm quite looking forward to being able to reclaim that trip and uh, not have to figure out what the meal plan is going to be for the week, not figure out what, you know, clothes or bedding needs to be cleaned. I'm going to just, I'm going to just shut off for a week. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to turn off technology. I'm going to just throw it all out the window. Might throw it at the plane on the way maybe. Um, but that's what I'm very much looking forward to just traveling in general, but particularly that trip. Yeah. Just being able to just travel, get out of here. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. I will be leaving Delphine's website in the description along with her Instagram if you would like to connect with her and see what she's got going on. There will also be additional resources in the description about the different like reading resources that she was talking about and so just some just good things that you can check out um, if you are interested as a teacher, parent, whatever the situation may be. And if you'd like to connect with this podcast, of course, our website is in the description and that brings you to all of our social media. So feel free to go follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you would like to support the podcast, our Patreon link is there as well. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast and share a little bit about your story, you can send me an email. So thank you so much, Delphine, for spending the time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next week. Bye. Thanks so much, Sarah.